I had the pleasure of attending a conference this past summer uh, where our speaker was one of the guest speakers on the program. And uh, Jack Bailey, I don't know if you remember Jack Bailey, uh, the man who used to have the program Queen for a day. Uh, Jack was the MC, and uh, he tried to match wits with this lady, and he got chopped down just like cordwood. Uh, and he got cute about the town she lives in. And I'm not about to do that because I, I saw what happened to Jack. The committee went up New England to bring a Yankee down to talk to you rebels. And, uh, uh, this is a very gracious lady. Uh, she's an excellent speaker. That's uh, a lot of humor, a wit. Ranitin. She has the ability to put it all together, and I could talk long about her, but she can do it much better than I can. And so at this time, if you will help me welcome Marjor from Ashburnham, Massachusetts. Marge. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Marge from Ashburnham, Massachusetts, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh -huh. Now, I use all those names because I don't like to slight any former husbands. <laughs> and it gives the current one a sense of security because the name can't get much longer. <clears throat> I planned and was asked to speak this afternoon. How many of you were here for this morning's meeting? You heard Ramona. I did too, so I went back to my room and packed, and I came over to say, it's nice having met you. <laughs> if you look on your program, you'll find out, I think, from the list of past speakers that I'm the first speaker that you've had from Massachusetts. And if you were aware or sober during the presidential election, you know that we went McGovern. <laughs> but I want you to know it's not difficult coming into the states. They set up the offices to issue passports. <laughs> they tell us that Nixon isn't a poor loser, that we're going to get Lend-Lease, and that McGovern has been made ambassador. But it's really nice to be here. You know, I, I think about states as being similar to each other. Uh, in Maine, for instance, people in Maine are so basically honest that it's painful. I'm finding that North Carolina is the same. You know, I went to Bangor, Maine to speak many years ago, and I was going into a department store, and a man held the door. And I said, thank you very much for holding the door. And he said, I want holding it for you. I was waiting for somebody else. appreciate honesty like that to a degree but you know I can get lost in a telephone booth and I drove all the way down here and I saw an article in your paper the other day in the Durham paper 
uh, that advertised a thing called Earth Shoes. Now, I don't know. There's some in the balcony who are going to perhaps tell some of you on the main floor this because I'm suspicious that they might have a big mouth, some of them up there. I'm speaking to you barefoot because my feet hurt all the time. So when I saw these Earth Shoes advertised, I said, that's for me. So I got into my car and I found my way to Chapel Hill, which may not sound like a big deal to some of you, but for me that's an accomplishment. And I bought a pair of earth shoes. And I came back and I showed them to Ramona and our chairman's charming wife was sitting there and Ramona said, how do you like her earth shoes? And Sue looked at them, she looked me straight in the eye, she smiled, she said, they're the ugliest things I've ever seen. <laughs> can't beat honesty like that. <laughs> now, what we try to do at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it's a big meeting like this one or a little meeting, it doesn't make any difference. We try to tell you, or I try to tell you, what alcohol did to me. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. What AA has done for me. I don't care if it's a conference or a banquet. There are none of us in AA who are orators or entertainers or experts on this subject. I speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's my way of giving back to the program what I have taken from it. And of course, what I have taken from it is sobriety, sanity, my life, some serenity, some peace of mind. How do you repay for things like this? Now, I personally don't care for drunkologues, but you have to get into it to a degree for people to be able to identify. But I often wished over the years that there was some way that I could describe how evil, how bad my drinking was without going into all the details. Now, through the grace of God and the help of you wonderful people, I had my last drink of alcohol in 1957. In 1971, and if you can add, that's quite a few years later. I can't happen to, you know, I can't. I think it's around 12, 13 years. Uh, I was at a meeting in Miami, Florida. And I, by this time, you know, I think I've become quite proper. I look a lot different than I did when I was drinking. I try to act proper. I don't do it too well, but I try. And I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Miami, Florida. And I saw a man that I thought I recognized. So I asked someone, who's that man over there? And they gave me a name, which meant nothing to me. But I kept looking at him all through the meeting. And after the meeting, he came over to me and he said, are you from Boston? And I said, yeah. He said, did you used to work on a newspaper? I said, yeah. He said, you rolled me one night for $150. <laughs> there, he scratched his head. He said, 22 years I've been around this program. I've never heard anything like that. <laughs> so I said to the man, I don't think that that's true. I said, you do look familiar to me, but I said, I was a platinum blonde when I drank, and you wouldn't recognize me. And besides, if I rolled you, you wouldn't have known it. So he said, I saw you in Boston when you first came around AA, 
and I recognized you immediately, but I didn't have the courage to approach you then. He said, and I was sitting at a bar, and I felt you take my wallet. And he said, you convinced me that you worked for a newspaper and that your newspaper had sent you out to do a story on someone who had been rolled, and that if I would give you my name and address and go along with you, I would get my money back plus a write-up in the paper that I could show my friends. And I shook my head. I don't believe he's that stupid, but, you know, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've learned to carry the message. Somebody said, did you make amends to him? I said, yes, I gave him a message. I said, if I were you, sir, and I drank again, I would watch my wallet and stay away from fast broads. <laughs> Most people start to tell you about their drinking problem by saying, I took my first drink at the age of such and such. This is not when my problem started. My problem started the day I was born. I was given to a set of computers called parents, and they started to program me to fit into the slot that they wanted me to fit into. Now, I'm the youngest of fifth, uh, five girls. That makes me a fifth. I don't know if that's significant or not. <laughs> I want to make it very clear that I don't blame my parents or my family situation for my drinking but my thinking was something that was programmed into me and as a child I had no defense except to accept what was told to me. And so they started out and they programmed me for fear, they programmed me for guilt, they programmed me for shame, they programmed me to be prejudiced and most of all they programmed me to be subject to what other people think about me. Now, I, had an, I don't like any kind of vulgarity at an AA meeting. On a one-to-one -one basis, you can say anything you want to me. I think when we get up and we speak at an AA meeting that we have a, a duty not to expose people to something that maybe makes them uncomfortable. But I had an old Irish grandmother, and she had an expression, and it's a little bit gross, but I know you'll forgive it. Um, she used to say, often, if you burn your ass, you'll sit on the blister. <laughs> now, in my programming, the way I was taught, I thought if I burnt my ass, the neighbor sat on the blister. <laughs> because everything I did was how it was going to affect somebody else. Now, when my family couldn't quite complete the job, they put me into a religious pattern that taught me more fear. You know, it's very humorous if I tell you this today, but when I was a child, they told me if I was bad, I'd go to hell. And by the time I was six years old, already I knew I wasn't going to make heaven. And then they told me that the devil was there and there was a big burning fire. Can you imagine the fear this sets up in a child? So I feared the devil. And then my father insisted that you eat everything on your plate. I really, you know, I, God rest his soul, but I curse sometimes today because I'm in a restaurant, they give me three times the amount of food I want, and I, whoa, I got to finish my plate, you know. But he said if I didn't eat the crust of the bread, that Johnny Crust would come and drag me down cellar and make me eat the crust. So now I had the devil and Johnny Crust to worry about. 
Then I had a rocking chair when I was a child, and it had a cushion on it. And the cushion had a tag, and it said, Do not remove under penalty of the law. <laughs> and one day in the solitude of my room, I ripped it off. And then I knew that they were coming to get me. So I used to lay in bed at night, and I'd watch for the devil, and I'd watch for Johnny Crust and those men in blue that were going to get me because of that tag. These are real fears, you know. I was so fearful, I couldn't possibly live. And as I grew older, these boogeymen went away. I don't believe in the devil. I used to think I married him, but... Um, and, of course, I don't believe in Johnny Crust. And if he comes at night, I'm not going down cellar with him. And I don't believe that the policemen are going to come and get me for that tag. But I built up other boogeymen for myself. All kinds of insecurities. Some of my boogeymen were money worries, boogeymen of tomorrow. You know, we all have our little boogeymen. Sometimes the neighbor is your boogeyman. You know, you don't care what you do as long as the neighbor doesn't see it. And I found out in here that if I'm going to live, what I do, I pay the price for. So I can be me. Well, with all this negative programming and all this fear, at the age of 17, my father died, and my mother said, live. And all I knew was how to die. I wasn't programmed for life. Anything I did, they say, you know what's going to happen to you when you die? And you know, in here we really have to learn to live one day at a time, because we're programmed to live in the future. Do you ever see a little three, four-year-old youngster who's truly experiencing life? They love everybody. They're open. They haven't learned how to dam up their feelings. And some doting aunt or uncle comes in and says, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, start worrying now, kid. <laughs> and we wonder why we worry about the future. But at the age of 17, I found something. I found a magic elixir called alcohol. And I was out on a date with a man who was a little older than I, and we went to a nightclub, and he asked me would I like a drink, and I said yes, and he said what? And I said, Tom Collins. That sounded racy to me. And so I was a social drinker for about 20 minutes. <laughs> that night, I did all the things that an alcoholic does. I blacked out. I passed out. I heaved all over my date and all over his car. And for two days afterwards, I suffered acute symptoms of alcoholism. Of course, I didn't recognize it, but, you know, you learn something from every experience. I said, I must be allergic to gin. And two days later, when the shakes went away and the sweats and I stopped heaving, I wrote this young man a note. And I said, I was so sorry that I had gotten drunk, that I wasn't used to drinking, that I wasn't that kind of a girl. And he called up, and we continued to date, and a year later we were married. And he found out, and I found out, I shouldn't have written that note. I was that kind of a girl. <laughs> but alcohol was very important to me because I didn't know how to live. And everything I did revolved around a drink. And for years, for years, alcohol experienced life for me. And you know, here in Alcoholics Anonymous, we become a little bit fanatic. 
and I don't know why we shouldn't when it's something that's given us back our life and our sanity. But we think it's good for everybody, and certainly it would be if they wanted it. But, you know, everybody has a different idea of what life is. I read once about a man who spent all his life making money. And he was laying on his deathbed, and he said to his wife, I know I'm dying, but I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to have my Cadillac gold-plated, and I'd like to be buried in it. And he died, and she said, well, it's his money, it's his Cadillac, I'll carry out his wishes. So she had the Cadillac gold-plated, and they bought a special cemetery lot. They had a derrick there, and they had the corpse strapped behind the steering wheel of the Cadillac. They had some workers there to fill in around the edges. And as they were lowering the corpse into the ground in the Cadillac, one of the workers looked at the other, and he said, man, ain't that really living? And so it was with me when I was drinking. I thought I was really experiencing life. Two years after I was married, I had a son who just became a burden to me because he interfered with my partying, he interfered with my drinking. And in here we find out that there's nothing that we can do about the past. Those of us who have children try so hard to make amends that we can really do a job on them if we if we don't find some control and balance. And I think this is an everlasting striving for those of us who have children, like Ramona spoke this morning, that we know we've done damage to. But for about 10 years, I was a social... Well, for about five years, I was a social drinker. For another five years, I was an anti-social drinker. There was never any trouble when I drank, as long as I got my own way. And uh, then somewhere along the line, I passed that invisible wall into the acute stage of alcoholism where I no longer was mentally capable of knowing what was happening in my environment. Now, it's significant to me that during these last three and a half years, I looked for help. I went to a doctor, and I told him about my weight problem, and he gave me dexedrine to help me cut down on my eating. I went to another doctor three days later because if you take amphetamines and you drink, you can sell your bedroom set. You're not going to do any sleeping, so get rid of it, you know. And uh, so I went to another doctor after two or three days, and I told him about my sleep problem. And he gave me barbiturates to help me to sleep. And now my main problem became no night from day, so I'd know whether to take a wake-up pill or a go-to-sleep pill. Then I had a third doctor that I used as a spare. Uh, I also, my father was a druggist, and I had a friend of his who was a druggist, an alcoholic, and also hooked on pills, and we used to just go in his back room and pick out drugs indiscriminately. I went by colors mostly. And so I inadvertently got hooked on drugs before it was popular. I attempted through the abuse of alcohol and drugs to commit suicide, and they had a family council. We're not Indians, but we're always having councils. And um, they decided I should go to a psychiatrist. Now, I have nothing against psychiatry in general. There's just this one I'd like to get. Uh, he turned me over to his psychologist after a suicidal attempt. They did three days of testing, and they decided that I was a suicidal depressive. 
and they had a meeting with my family, and they said, if you put her away, we'll give her shock treatments and change her attitude. And they were successful in what they said they would do. I went into the hospital suicidal. I had 17 electric shock treatments. I came out homicidal. I said, I'll get him if it's the last thing I do. But I had been to three doctors and a psychiatrist, and nobody had mentioned alcoholism. Now, in fairness to this psychiatrist and these good doctors, I might say that I did something, especially with the psychiatrist, that perhaps no other alcoholic has ever done with a psychiatrist. I lied to him a little. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think alcoholics would be better off to go to veterinarians. Yeah. They're used to guessing what's wrong with their patients. <laughs> the alcoholic goes in and he tells a mess of lies, and then he finds fault with the doctor because he didn't get a proper diagnosis. Well, I got out of that hospital, and they said, don't drink for a month. So I met him halfway. I didn't drink for two weeks. But I went back to my favorite bar, and they hadn't seen me for a month. And so I said, I'll have one drink, a double vodka martini. Well, you know, one drink after you haven't seen people for a month. I don't know how many drinks I had that day. But I said, I was with a girlfriend, and I made a complete understatement to her. I said, I think I'm going to be sick. She drove me home. I, I lasted till I got home. I got into bed, and I said to her, I need a basin. Now, if my husband had been there, there would have been no problem. By this time, he was well-trained. When I said I needed a basin, he knew that I wasn't lying. But she took her time, and so I couldn't wait. And I was laying in bed, and I heaved over the side of the bed. And I had long, blonde hair. Now, I don't know if I fell out of bed, or did you ever have this experience when the bed moves? You think it's best to get out of it because, you know, it's, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, whatever happened, I was on the floor in what I had heaved, and my husband picked that moment to come home. And I can remember, I wasn't blacked out, I was just sick, but to me this is significant. He walked into the room, he stood at the threshold, I'm laying in this mess, the floor hasn't been dusted for, you know, it's just terrible. And he stood there and he asked me a typical non-alcoholic question. He said, have you been drinking? <laughs> I raised my head up on my elbow and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, I gave him a typical alcoholic answer, I said, you're always accusing me of something. <laughs> hmm? It's too bad we can't have pictures of ourselves before and after. I don't know how long I continued to drink. I lost three and a half years out of my life. I can't give you dates, I can't give you days. But somewhere along the line, I started daily drinking again. And uh, by this time, I was drinking Muscatel. When I came into the program, I heard about winos, and I shook my head. I said, maybe they're winos. But I drank wine because I read somewhere where it had less calorie content than other alcoholic beverages. How's that sound, huh? That's why I drank Muscatel. 
But I started, how I graduated to wine and why, I don't know. I'm just a damn good alcoholic. I know what to do. And so I had been drinking all afternoon, and I stopped and I bought a bottle of Muscatel, and I was home and I was passed out in bed. And my husband came home, and he woke me up, and I can still remember his words. He said, I can't go on living with a drunk. Either you get out of the house or I'll get out. Now, during these three and a half years where I drank every day, I, you know, alcoholics are not stupid. We learn. I found out that a lot of yakking can go on when you're packing. And so I kept a suitcase packed constantly on the floor of the bedroom. I washed something. I didn't put it back in the bureau drawer. I put it in a big suitcase. When I came into AA, I found out I have worn out luggage and I haven't been anywhere. Just from packing and unpacking, getting thrown out of the house. So I said, I'll get out. So I staggered out of bed. I closed the cover of the suitcase and I left. I took a furnished room in one of the worst sections of a suburb of Boston that I could find because I wanted people to feel sorry for me. By this time, nobody even bothered to find out where I was living. Everybody was just glad that I was gone. You know, when I came into AA, I said to my first husband one time, isn't it marvelous how my health has improved since I came into AA? He said, I know, you haven't even had cancer once. You know, I used to try to get people riled up by telling them that I was sick, and I was sick. I was a victim of the illness of alcoholism, and I didn't know it. But I wasn't living so far away that I couldn't make it back to my favorite club. And I was sitting in the club one day, and I was drinking. And I want to tell you, I read a lot during this period of time. During my whole life, I read a lot. But during this specific part of my life, I read psychology. I was trying to find out what was wrong with my husband. He showed very abnormal behavior patterns. He, sometimes when we went to a party and liquor was free, he would drink two drinks. Sometimes, on occasion, when he would drink too much, he would drink strawberry milkshake in the morning to get over a hangover. I said, you're sick. <laughs> he also had, had violent temper tantrums, and he couldn't understand things like, he would leave for work in the morning, and he would get home in the evening, and I would call him from New York. And he would say, and this happened many, many times, and I began to think that he was retarded because he asked the same question every time, and he got the same answer. He should know by now. He would say, what are you doing in New York? I'd say, I came over to buy earrings. Because you can buy earrings in New York three pair for a dollar at the farmer's market. Now, I could, you'd think he'd appreciate a frugal wife. But I never, never could get him to understand this sort of thing. So I read a lot of psychology. I was trying to find out what was wrong with him. I thought I was fine, but, you know, he had a problem. And um, I was sitting at a bar, and a man came in, and he ordered a ginger ale straight. And then he drank it. So... <laughs> you know, I made like a psychologist. I said, why? you know, I questioned him about this abnormal behavior pattern. I know today it was the grace of God, but he said, I'm going to AA. And I said, oh, I'd like to go to one of those meetings. And it was that day that I went home and got thrown out of the house. So when I went to my first AA meeting, I was living in a furnished apartment in the slums. I had been there for a week, and I hadn't brought one bit of food into the apartment. And I came to my first AA meeting to see what drunks look like. 
I'm ashamed to tell you that. But I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I was a suburban housewife. I was living in the slums, to be sure, but I was living there by choice. And there wasn't much wrong with me except people picked on me and bothered me. And I really believed this. But at my first AA meeting, I got more fear. I heard people get up and talk like I'm talking today. And I said, God, I didn't even tell my psychiatrist this much, and I got a le- a 17 electric shock treatments. These people are going to get grabbed, you know. I didn't think that you should tell those things. But the thing that impressed me about my first meeting was that people were able to laugh at themselves. A man get up and he said, I'm not much of a speaker, but I used to be an expert on everything. He said, I sit in a bar room and I could discuss the sock vaccine, the state of the nation, the atomic bomb. Of course, when I left the bar room, I couldn't find my own house two blocks away. And this impressed me. This is the only thing I really remember about my first meeting. But I'd like to share with you some of the feelings I remember about the first year that I was around the program. Now, I heard people say there are no musts in AA. Let me tell you something. There may not be any musts, but there are a few you'd betters. And I was around the program for one year before I learned this. Now, maybe there's somebody out there as stupid as I was, and I'm going to share this with you today so that you won't have to go a year. I liked the AA meetings. People were friendly with me. They greeted me. Uh, I liked the conviviality before and after the meetings. I liked most of the speakers. I liked every part about Alcoholics Anonymous except that part where you stop drinking. It's... It took me one year to find out that I had to stop drinking to get sober. Isn't that profound? I wanted it all, but I didn't want to give up the drinking. And so I was aptly described as one of those nuts who's in and out of the program. But somewhere along the line, of course, when we come to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I feel we surely have been touched by the hand of God. Sometimes we brush it off temporarily. Sometimes we brush it off for good. But, you know, it's there if we want it. And I kept coming back to AA. And somewhere along the line, some of the programs started to sink in. And in May of 1957, through the grace of God and the help of you people, I started to stay sober one day at a time. Or I got dry, that is. I feel there's a big difference. I feel when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, you can make a decision. Are you or aren't you an alcoholic? Um, If you're not sure... You might ask your spouse. Um, (laughs) They'll tell you. If you go home, or if you're living with somebody else's spouse, you know, whoever you happen to be living with. But um, if you go home and there's nobody to ask, that might be a good indication. Because, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, many times the alcoholic is the last one around to know that they're having a problem with alcohol. We should be the first, but many times we're the last. And, you know, like was so beautifully pointed out this morning, this is a family illness, you know. You know, in retrospect, when I think about my feelings when I first came to AA, the night I came home from my first meeting, I hadn't spoken to my mother for about two or three months. I was so elated to find out I wasn't crazy and that I might be an alcoholic, I called her up about 11 o'clock, and I said, Mom, now, she hasn't heard from me, see, for two or three months. I said, Mom, guess what? I think I'm an alcoholic. 
And, you know, she said, I think you're a nut. And she hung up the phone. She wouldn't even talk to me. And, she, and so then when she finally talked to me, she said, now, haven't you done enough to disgrace the family? Now you're going to associate with that crowd of drunks. And I think I kept going to meetings because they didn't want me to. But after I'd been sober about six months, I took my mother to a, anniversaries and meetings that I knew would be nice, you know. And uh, she got very curious. She was old. She could get away with it, you know. Uh, she'd say, is that one an alcoholic? Is that one an alcoholic? How about that one? I said, Mom, you can tell the alcoholics at a meeting. Now, you look out at the group, and you see somebody who's sitting there, and they're very nervous. They're biting their fingernails. They're scratching their head. They're lighting one cigarette after another. They're moving around in their chair. That's the person who's living with the alcoholic. Now, you look beside them. <laughs> You look beside him and you'll see the alcoholic. Right? You know? We're really very lucky. We find oblivion at times, you know. The non-alcoholic has to go through this whole thing fairly sober. God, that's terrible. So when you come into the program, I felt that I had a choice. I could say I'm an alcoholic or I'm not an alcoholic. But then I had a further choice. I could choose to stay dry or I could choose to get sober. And dry to me is being physically without a drink. And SOBA is working or attempting to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and to find out who I am and what my creative power intended me for here on earth. And so if you're an alcoholic and you're staying dry, you're cheating yourself. You know, if you've got resentments. I used to be exhausted when I first came around AA. I, I hated anybody who'd been sober over a year. I don't know how I ever, you know, no wonder it took me a year to learn to stay away from a drink. If somebody get up and they said, my name's Jim, I've been sober three months, I'd sit there and say, right on, you know. If uh, somebody get up and said, my name's Millie, I've been sober eight months, I'd go, one year I'd cover. I'm only going to half listen to her. Now, over a year, I block you out completely because I was jealous and envious because I said I'll never be able to do this thing. And I would go to a big meeting like this, and I was exhausted when I got home. I would judge everything and everybody in the room. I like her. I don't like the way she dresses. He looks all right. And after the meeting, I speak to you accordingly. If I liked you a lot, I'd say, hello there, how are you? If I didn't like you, I'd hello. If I didn't like you at all, I'd say, hi. You know, I, that's exhausting. That's really exhausting. And now I come down here to North Carolina, and I love each and every one of you. And if you don't love me, you have a problem. <laughs> Not mine. Because I'm no longer subject to other people. I don't give a damn. Isn't that beautiful? I really like that. That's a freedom for me. Because I live my life according to what other people thought about me. I found out in here how to stay away from one drink for one day at a time. And then I found out so much more. I told you I'm the youngest of five girls. I asked my mother once, how many children did you want, Mom? She said, none. <laughs> when she found out, and I can understand this today, when she found out she was going to have a fifth child, she said, well, if it's a son. And when they came in and said, you have a baby girl, she wished she was fishing so she could throw it back for undersized or something, you know. And so she let me know. 
Unfortunately, she let me know that I wasn't wanted. I never felt like I had a place here on this earth. I tried to commit suicide three times because I took on the identity that somebody else gave me. My four older sisters said, empty the garbage. I thought this was what I was going to do the rest of my life. I thought I was a garbage emptier. Any job in the house that anybody didn't want to do, I did it. And so I had such a poor image of myself because they had given it to me. And I acted out what they wanted me to act out with my drinking. I was nothing. And I found out in here that I am something. I'm a divine person. And I feel each person in this room is divine because we're children of God. And I found out whether my earthly family want me or not, and incidentally my four older sisters have nothing to do with me now that I'm sober. They say, that, that, you know, I'm the only alcoholic. I come from a very good Irish family in Boston. I'm the only alcoholic. The rest of them are just ordinary drunks. And, I'm a, and I am now a boa. You know, I am now not welcome. And so I accept this. That's their problem. I would like to be friendly. But if I can't make that scene, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But I found out in here <coughs> that I do have a right to be here on Earth. Because if my patent was not here on Earth, then obviously I wouldn't be here. I found out all my life I mouthed the Lord's Prayer. You know, I said, I I never knew what it meant. I found out in here what it means when it says, Give us this day our daily bread. We live one day at a time. I found out what it is, Thy will be done. You know, the worst two words in my vocabulary, or in my opinion, any alcoholic's vocabulary, are, I want. Worst two words. I found out in here it isn't important what happens to me. It's my attitude toward what happens to me. If people throw rocks at me, I can either use them for stumbling blocks or stepping stones. I found out that attitude for me is the key word. Other things that I have learned in my life, three things that are important to me, balance, control, and flexibility, open-mindedness. You know, ten years ago, after I'd been doing such a marvelous job staying sober, I started to get pains in the upper parts of my arms. Within three months, I was so crippled with rheumatoid arthritis that I couldn't comb my hair or dress myself. I was in three hospitals during a two-year period, and I was diagnosed as a rheumatoid arthritic. I was on massive amounts of medication. I, don't, I was in constant pain for a year and a half. I don't know how I would have survived if I hadn't been an alcoholic and learned this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But one of my nurses at my hospital said, why don't you try a chiropractor? I said, are you kidding? They're not even licensed in Massachusetts. And what's more, they hurt people. I know they're quacks. But I hurt so bad, I said, I'll try anything. Flexibility and an open mind. I went to a chiropractor, and for the first time, I got some relief in a year and a half from the pain. And so I continued to go to him. Through the grace of God and the help of this good man, as you can see, I have no arthritic crippling. I don't take any medication. And four years ago, I married the chiropractor. (laughs) 
We never know in the creative process of being what our higher power has intended for us until we let it work itself out. We must let it work itself out. <coughs> you know, it's so easy to talk about your drinking, but there's so many things that those of us who experience sobriety one day at a time, when I come to speak to a group like this, there's so much that I would like to tell you. Along in that Lord's Prayer that I, my mind gets confused, Along with that Lord's Prayer, in there it says, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that my creative power intended for me to have a heaven here on earth. I know how to make it hell. Easily I can make it hell with one drink. But I can make hell for myself without a drink. I can do it with my self-active mind. Do you ever have a moment in your life when you're serene, full of peace? If you're newly sober, maybe you just have flashes of this. But as you go into one day at a time, you know, you get longer periods of this serenity and peace of mind and tranquility. And you know what messes it up? The mind. That's my devil right there. I'm experiencing this heaven here on earth and my mind says to me, but tomorrow, or so-and-so did this, you know, it gets right in the way and messes up the whole thing. Now, I found out in here not only how to love myself, but how to love other people. And this isn't completely altruistic. You know, we say we love everybody. Do you ever have anybody that you really got a resentment toward? Somebody that you really don't like, and you're forced to come face-to-face -face with them? Do you know what happens? To me, it used to. My stomach tightened up. I got that pain in the back of my head, you know, and my mouth got dry. And I said things I didn't want to say. That person was controlling me. I don't love anybody enough to let them control me. And so, uh, you know, we have a man up our way. He's been dry for a long period of time. He's got a resentment toward me. If he'd come and tell me what it was, maybe we could work it out. But I go to a meeting. He walks out of the meeting. Somebody says, does that bother you? I say, no. I say a little prayer of gratitude that God sees fit to have him remove himself from my presence. But I meet this man on the street. And he, you know, he wants to become like an ostrich. He wants to hide. But he's forced to stand there. And so I walk by him. I say, hi, how are you? Oh, I can see his stomach tighten up. I can see him get a headache, you know. He's got a problem. In the old days, I would have said, now, I wonder why he doesn't like me. I don't give a damn. That's his problem. And I really like this, this freedom. Now, I found out that the thing I complained about when I was drinking was a thing that I should have been grateful for, pressure. How about it if you're fairly new or you're around and you say, have you ever heard anybody say this? God, I can't stand it any longer. Huh? Do you ever hear anybody say that? You know, pressure is what makes us know we're living. You show me a human being that has no pressure, and I'll show you a corpse. And then they put him six foot underground. And if he's well light, they plank a tombstone on top of him. How's that for pressure? Huh? When I complain about the pressure of everyday living, I say to myself, are you sure you want the alternative? Six foot under. 
I'm not ready for that yet. We complain. I complained when I was drinking about people, places, and things. That's what bothered me. If everybody would leave me alone. Anybody here ever said that? You know, people left us alone. We could have been social drinkers. You know, sometimes they take a person, they put him in solitary confinement. They take care of his needs, no problem. Maybe they even give him some reading material. But do you know what happens to him? He has no people, places, or things to give him pressure. He goes crazy. It's not people, places, and things that drove me crazy. I drove me crazy. And I found that out in here, that everything has to do with my attitude. I learned in here a new way to pray. I used to pray. I made bargains. I, I worried, and I figured everything out. And then when I, I got it all figured out, I'd say, God, here it is. If you do this this way, then I'll do this for you. Like his life depended on me, you know. I was going to give him a break. And I read once about a man who was very religious. He spent three times a day, he'd lock himself in his room, and he would pray like this. He would say, Dear God, how come everything bad happens to me? I have poor health. I have no money. I have no job. I have no family. And yet I pray to you day after day, Why, God, why? My brother down the street, he has good health. He's got a good business. He's got a big car. He's got a nice family. I don't think he ever takes your name except in blasphemy. Why, God, why? And one day in the solitude of his room, a voice came. And it said, whatever faults your brother might have, at least he's not a nagger. <laughs> and I found out before AA, this is the way I prayed, I nagged. I found out in here how to live. You know, I read a lot, and my husband just had a book published last May. It's kind of dirty if anybody likes to read it, the name of its fault lines. If anybody accuses me of promoting at AA, you're right. It's a very good book. But uh, I go into bookstores, and I see all these shelves of books on reincarnation. People are trying to find out if there's life after death. Half of them that I meet don't even know there's life after birth yet. <laughs> and I didn't know it until I came to AA. And you people not only taught me how to stay away from one drink for one day, but you taught me how to live how to love. When I first came into AA, I couldn't stand those four-letter words. The ones that you weren't supposed to be able to stand were okay with me. But words like love and life, you know, these, oh, when people talk that way, they just turn, and then three-letter words like God, they turned my stomach. And you know, maybe there's somebody new out there who says, I'd like to go into AA, but I might become too normal. You're safe with us. I'll guarantee it. And it's funny sometimes, you know, how new people feel about coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was drinking, I was a platinum blonde. I thought I was an undiscovered Marilyn Monroe till I got sober and looked in the mirror. Now I know why I'm undiscovered. But um, as I told you, I was a daily drinker who went on benders, and when I would be really on a bad tear, my husband would take the car away from me which was unfair because I'd be in no condition to walk. But I used to, you know, where there's a will, where there's a will, there's a way. I used to steal my son's bicycle. 
and I would bicycle down to that club that I loved three and a half miles away. And I always picked the rush hour to come home so I could get dinner like a nice housewife. And I had to travel a main street where big trailer trucks also wanted to travel. And I would drunkenly weave my bicycle in front of those trucks. And those truck drivers would yell at me suggestions how to ride my bicycle. <laughs> and I would yell back at them what they could do with their trucks. And you have to be pretty adept at bike riding to make obscene hand gestures at truck drivers and still keep control. When I got to Watertown Square, there were nine streets that empty into Watertown, into a rotary. Fortunately, Perkins Institute for the Blind is right outside the square, and when the police would press the button, to change the lights, a buzzer sound for me and the blind people to know it's time to go. <laughs> then I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I met one of those kooks who'd been sober over a year that I hated, and he said to me, where do you live? And I said, Watertown. And he said, where? And I told him. And he said, oh, you know, there's a meeting in the church about two, door, two blocks away from your house. I looked at him. I was indignant. You know, I said, I have a son in school in that town. What if somebody should see me walking into that church? Any of you ever experienced that? You go to your first day. You don't care who sees you drunk. Everybody in your town or city knows. But when you go to an AA meeting, you go way away. And you know who you meet? The guy next door. He's going way away, too. You're better off to go to your hometown. There's nobody there you know. They're from way off there. Right? If I could choose to be reborn, and I feel like it's been a rebirth here in this one life, but if I could choose to be reborn, I would choose to be born an alcoholic. I would choose to drag myself across the hell that I drag myself across in order to find this. Because to me, Alcoholics Anonymous is like a night school of learning. I don't know anywhere else where you can learn how to live here in Alcoholics Anonymous. But some people come here and you talk to them, you say, do you read the literature? Did you read the book? No, I go to meetings, you know. It's like, you know, I feel here today that we belong to one of the most exclusive clubs in the universe. Do you know anybody else that pays an initiation fee to get into an organization that we pay? You know, you go to a country club, you know what they want? Some of them are lousy $500, some of them lousy $2,000 to join. Those of us who are in AA, some of us gave up our families, we gave up numerous jobs, we gave up our health, some of us gave up our sanity temporarily, we gave up our children. We pay an initiation fee. This is very exclusive here. They say alcoholics are weak. You've got to have strength to get here. <laughs> huh? Not easy to kill yourself, you know. And it's most difficult to do it with booze or pills or however. And so here we are in one of the most exclusive clubs in the world, supposing that you paid this initiation fee to go to college. And the professor says, here are some books on the subject, here are some pamphlets, 
here's what you have to do to get the most out of the course, and you sit there and say, no, thanks, I'll come to class, that's enough. You know, there's so much for me to learn here. I told somebody today, it's too bad. You know, I I'm a grandmother, I've got an 11-year-old granddaughter, a 9-year-old grandson, I'm not going to tell you my age, but you can figure it out from that. Um, I was sitting at a, at a, at a, I had my granddaughter when she was about two years old swimming one time. And I, I'm very careful what I say now. You notice I use very small words. Anything over two syllables I'm very careful of. Because we had been swimming and I had my hair in pigtails and I was sitting at a luncheon counter with her. This is nine years ago, you know. And um, I wanted her to drink her milk. And she said, no, 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 I'm not going to drink my milk. And I took her by the hand and I said, okay, I guess grandmothers aren't supposed to win. And a man sitting there tapped me and he said, pardon me, ma'am, did you say grandmother? And I said, yeah. He said, either grandmothers are changing or I've got to have my eyeglasses changed. And I meant to say to him, both my son and I were precocious children, but I said, both my son and I were promiscuous. <laughs> and... What do you say to a stranger for an encore to that one? I just grabbed the baby, you know, and I took off with her. And so I'm very careful about the words I use. But, you know, here I am, a grandmother, getting on in life, and, when I, and people ask me to speak. Now, it's too late. When I was 18, I knew everything, and nobody ever asked me. And now, the longer I'm in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the less I know. Because to me, living is a learning process. And I hope, like Ramona said this morning, that with each day I grow a little, spiritually, not this way. Now maybe there's somebody new sitting out there today who says, well, you know, she was on the program with Dave in California. She was on the program with Dave, my God, Dave, you talk a lot, in Miami, you know, and... Uh, you know, she travels a lot, and she's been down here, and she's been sober. I've been sober 15 years, thank you. And um, she hasn't got any problems, and if I had what she had to cope with, I'd stay sober, too, and I'd talk like she talks. Everything is beautiful, you know. But if she had my problems, and you're right, I don't have any problems, none. I have incidents to clear through on a daily basis, no problems. But let me tell you a little bit. You know, I told you I married this marvelous chiropractor. I was a patient of his for a number of years. You're not going to believe this because the small town that I live in don't, but I never went out with him. He was married. But one night I went out to dinner with him. We were, I was down the Cape, and he happened to be down there, and he asked me to marry him. He's flaky, too. He already had a wife. And he said, but we're ready to get a divorce. I said, call me when you get it. Well, that isn't exactly how it happened. But anyway, uh, thank you. Um, we were going together, and I went to Pennsylvania to speak. And I spoke that night, and I couldn't wait to get away from the people. I knew something was wrong. I really knew it. You know, it's amazing the things that happen to you when you try to develop this conscious contact with your higher power. 
couldn't wait to get back to my hotel room. And I called and I found out that they've been trying to get in touch with me. Dr. Al had had a major coronary. Now this man had a very spiritual approach to living. I flew out from Pennsylvania the next morning. They picked me up at the airport and rushed me over the hospital. And I expected to find somebody whimpering, poor me. He was laying in the intensive care unit. There were tubes and, you know, you know what it's like. And I took his hand and he could barely talk and he looked up at me and he said, whatever happens, I'm grateful for the time we've had together. And so he recovered from that coronary and went back to chiropractic and we got married. In the last four years, he's had five coronaries. A year ago, June, he had open heart surgery. During this period of time, about four years ago, my nephew was killed in Vietnam by American gunfire. He was three weeks to the day younger than my son. I had a niece who lived with me who was an epileptic. My sister sent her over from England to get medical care here. She came to live with me when she was 17. I loved her because she looked just like me, she acted just like me, and how could you love, how could you help but love somebody like that? <laughs> she stayed with me for five years. Three years ago next month, my mother died, and 11 days later, they found my niece dead in bed. On one of my husband's coronaries, I took him to the hospital by ambulance, and I waited till daybreak because a patient lives till daybreak, there's a good chance they'll make it through the daylight hours. And I was exhausted. We had just come back from Colorado. And I took a taxi rather than call anybody at that hour in the morning. It was December. It was a gray, drizzly, horrible morning. And I sat frozen in the back seat of that cab, and I started projecting. I said, I hate to go into that big house all by myself. I hate to be alone. I'm going to be sad when I get there. You know, make sure if you pray for something you really want it, because God answered my prayers. The cab went off the road and hit a telephone pole. They brought me back to the hospital, and I was there for 11 days. I never had to go in that cold house that morning. <laughs> now, you know, I don't think you people told me this, but somewhere along the line, I assumed if I stayed sober and did my best, the bluebird of happiness was going to fly over. I didn't realize what he had to do occasionally. <laughs> my husband had open heart surgery a year ago last June. He could no longer be a chiropractor. But he wrote a book, and he wrote this book with a very positive attitude. He said, I'm going to sell it, and it's going to be a bestseller. Well, the book is on the market. I don't know if it's a bestseller, but we're working on it. And so I said, ha-ha, the bluebird, you know, I hope he's got constipation now. Um, and so the book was published in May, and things were looking up. And in July, my husband fell and broke his hip. He had to have a major operation with five pins put in his hip. So if there's anybody in North Carolina would like an excuse to drink, I'll give you one of mine. I found out that trouble doesn't get you drunk, death doesn't get you drunk, sickness doesn't get you drunk, 
You know what gets you drunk? Booze. Huh? You know, I was admitting a patient to my hospital one night. He fell into the office, looked me in the eye. He said, do you know why I'm drunk? And I'm kind of wise sometimes. I said, yeah, I think you've been drinking booze. And he focused, you know, he didn't like that. Focused his blurry eyes and he says, no. My landlord raised my rent. I said, did he lower it when you started to drink? He says, no, he threw me out. You know, isn't this typical? We drink because we have a problem. Well, I could go on all day, and I know you don't want me to. I've spoken an hour. I think that's long enough for anybody. I'd like to say, though, that I really have, I believe that the way to change our life, along with staying away from one drink, is to have an attitude of gratitude for everything. Recently, I heard something that's very comforting to me. You know, we as human beings, incidentally, I'd like to tell you this. I used to make excuses for myself by saying, I'm only human, you know. Anybody ever say that? What do you expect from me? I'm only human, you know. Boy, do we shortchange ourselves on that one. What a cop-out. I know today that I'm a human being. And the being part of me is love and truth and life. And when I dam up love and truth and life, then right, I'm only human. I'm not even functioning. This physical being is just a vehicle. What's inside is what counts. You can take the best automobile in the world, and without a driver, it's going to wreck. You can take the best physical body in the world, and without a conscious contact with a higher power and the being part of the human, being allowed to function, it's going to wreck. But, you know, with some people, God, to pe you know, I try, I really try. But sometimes I come in contact with some people and I say to myself, you shouldn't get upset. God hasn't finished with them yet, you know. And then I meet some other people and I say, you shouldn't get upset. You know, maybe God hasn't even started with them yet. <laughs> and I use this for a cop-out, you know. I say, don't get mad at me. God hasn't finished with me yet. And so what a beautiful, joyous experience sharing with you. And you're allowing me to come down here to North Carolina, thanks to Dave and Willard, and to share my experience and my strength and hope with you. Like Ramona this morning, you know, everybody after the meeting said to her, Ramona, I love you. I hope she can lip read because I said, I hate you. I hate you. Because I had a follower this afternoon. Wasn't she beautiful this morning? Huh? She's almost nice enough to be an alcoholic, you know. Huh? I want to thank you, and I'd like to close with the same thing I close every meeting that I speak at, whether it's Ro I do a lot of speaking at Rotary, Kiwanis. I don't care. If they don't believe in God, that's their problem. I'm going to tell them about them anyway. They can do whatever they want. But I have this. So many people ask me for it afterwards. I have it on a card, but from, if you want a copy. For me, it's been very significant. It says, I know not by what methods rear, but this I know, God answers prayer. 
I know now when he sends the words that tells us fervent prayer is heard. I know it cometh soon or late, therefore I need to pray and wait. I know not if the blessing sought will come in just the way I thought. I leave my prayers with him alone, whose will is wiser than my own. God bless you all. Wasn't she great? Marge, I'd like to give you this little token of appreciation from the committee. Thank you. Appearing so, that's for the remark you made about my shoes. <laughs> hey, you see why I didn't try to match wits with this lady? All who will join me in the Lord's Prayer and closing this meeting. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.